Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. We will kick off at 9.14. It's good to be prompt. My name is Paul Woolley. I am the CEO of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Hereafter, we will refer to ourselves as LICC. It is really good to see you this morning. Thank you for coming to this seminar in Committee Room 9, to which you are very welcome, on this really significant theme, Serving the Common Good in Everyday Life. Uh, the Common Good and Serving It isn't an abstract concept. Uh, we want to talk about how we make that concrete reality in our everyday lives and work. I hope that you enjoyed breakfast and that in some ways has contributed to your and other people's common good in the course of the day. How do we serve the common good where we spend 95% of our waking lives? What does it look like to be everyday followers of Jesus in the different spaces and places we live and work? What could it look like to mould culture or to be a voice piece for truth and justice in the office, in Parliament, at the school gate, even down the gym. What could that look like? Well, to explore this really significant question, I am joined by a very distinguished panel of experts, also known as friends of <laughs> I will introduce all of our guests shortly, but one of them, Danny Kruger, to my far left, uh, in, in geography rather than politically, you understand, uh, is <laughs> the Member of Parliament for Devices, and he's required at the Leveling Up and Regeneration Committee, uh, which is uh, starting incredibly shortly. So I'm going to get straight to Danny in order to give him some airtime to allow him to escape, and then we'll focus on the other guests on the panel. Danny, it's very good indeed to see you today. What difference? Does being a follower of Jesus make to your work as an MP, and perhaps even the way that you think about politics? Thanks, Paul. And yes, thanks for having me, and very good to be here. I'm really, I do, I am sorry that I've got to go in about four minutes because this bill committee starts at 9:25, and you can't not have to be late. So um, I am late to everything else, um, but like all MPs. But um, uh, right, so let me try and answer succinctly. My, my constant refrain in Parliament is that everybody brings their religion to work. Everyone has a moral worldview, everyone has a metaphysics, even if they don't acknowledge it. And they are, one hopes, and I'm sure is always the case, living that out in the way you work. And my great regret is the way that that is denied and challenged. And so, uh, and I had it yesterday in a debate on assisted dying that we had in, in Westminster Hall, when the point was put... But to me, you know, you can have your faith, but keep it to yourself and don't impose on other people. Um, whereas I think everybody's more or less trying to impose their faith on other people because that's the way we live and we all have universal beliefs. And our faith as Christians is that uh, we can live alongside people of different faiths very harmoniously. Uh, but these are proper, it is appropriate to bring your your faith to work. So I live it out, I mean, practically speaking, there is, the good thing is, you know, and you can see it all around in the sort of iconography of the building and in the, I mean, what, you know, what we just had this morning, and obviously that's a special occasion, but every day we have prayers in the House of Commons. It's not televised, but proceedings of Parliament open every day. It's quite a long prayer, uh, led by the chaplain, uh, which all members who are going to be speaking in today's proceedings are expected to be there. Um, and the place is saturated in the history of Christianity, um, very explicitly. And it's actually a safe space for Christians, I, I think probably more than many workplaces and many parts of the public sector. So I give thanks for that. Uh, and, and there's a really strong Christian network here. And uh, lots, of, lots of fellow MPs across all parties. Uh, and there's lots of informal gatherings of those, as well as prayer meetings that happen um, so on Wednesday mornings there's a cross-party prayer group that I join periodically uh, which is great so, uh, so you know, I have nothing to complain of um, and, and you are protected so I got in trouble last week for talking about abortion in the House of Commons um, in a way that enraged uh, the pro-choice lobby and uh, again the suggestion was made I should basically shouldn't be talking about that. I didn't even mention faith in, it, in my little intervention but the implication was you should, you know, shut up. Actually, it's, it is okay to speak from a faith perspective in this place. 
um, even if the culture that we all we all inhabit is essentially hostile. Uh, I do think that Parliament remains uh, uh, a, a sort of bulwark uh, of Christianity in the UK. Thank you, Danny. Do you need to go now? One minute. So let's um, <laughs> let me try and get to it. So one is um, you were going into this committee in a moment, yeah. this levelling up committee. Um, practically, how are you integrating your faith in the way that you think about that and in the way that you engage with that committee? Secondly, how could we pray for you? We won't do that now, but we can yeah. do that subsequently. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we were just discussing the bill committee is a bit of a ceremonial. It doesn't have. There's not a lot of debate except through the front through the front bench. So we won't talk about that. I mean, but in that area, I mean, so my big political mission in here, uh, apart from sort of family uh, issues, is around community and civil society and the importance of, of, of empowering local places and people to take, have agency and control locally. I just think it's so thrilling at that whole agenda, and it has such a key role for faith groups, and particularly the, the parish church. So I, I, I'm, that levelling up bill is about devolution and community power. So I'm very inspired by what we're doing, what Dublin's doing on that front. Not enough mention of faith. We're not good enough, I don't think, in talking to faith groups or, or the church itself. And the church isn't really going to talk to us sometimes. But um, nevertheless, the, the government's framework around, around levelling up, I think, does create opportunities for that community-led uh, sort of social policy. Um, I mean, you can pray for, for courage, please, and wisdom, and, um, and, and honesty, and, and, and a soft heart, because you know, it's, it's tough sometimes, and, and one response is to harden and fight back aggressively, and I don't want to be like that. Um, I want to be soft and always close to this plus, but great, that's, that's the plan. Paul, thanks a lot, everybody. <laughs>
in PwC, where she qualified as a chartered accountant and then evolved from there into a consulting career in organisational development, leadership and talent management. She worked for PwC for around 24 years and has also done a great deal of work in the area of global organisational development and talent roles for HSBC and Prudential. Karen has been inspired by LICC for most of her career and recently stepped down as being a trustee. Uh, she was a trustee on our board for eight years. Please give a welcome to Karen Brown. And last, but my no means least, to my immediate right is Sophie Clark. Uh, Sophie is more towards the beginning of her career. She began work in Parliament in 2019, working for the PRU, that's the Parliamentary Research Unit. She now works as Senior Parliamentary Assistant for Robin Miller MP and is also Secretariat for the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Dying Well. In 2021, she was one of the youngest members to be voted onto the Church of England General Synod. Would you please give a warm welcome to Sophie? <laughs> so let me begin, if I may, with you, Mark. You've written quite a lot on this stuff in terms of how do we seek to integrate our faith, the gospel of Jesus, with the totality of who we are, including our work, and how do we seek to serve the common good within the context of the different spaces and places we work and the work that we do. I'd love you to talk to us a little bit about that. How can you help us think about that, give us a framework for that, but also perhaps you kick off by talking to us a little bit as, as to why we often find it a challenge to see that our work, our particular work, intrinsically matters to God and that that is part of our redemptive purpose in the world. Pointing at the microphone, you want me to use it? On this occasion. Oh, on this occasion. Well, morning everyone. Wonderful morning. to see you all. Thank you so much for coming. Um, there are enormous a number of forces, if you like, for the ordinary Christian in making them believe that what they do every day is not significant to God. And there are forces in the culture and there are also forces in, in the church. And um, I suppose one of the things we've observed is that the, if you work this way, the, the average ordinary Christian does not really believe that what they do every day is significant to God. It's just one of those things. And this is really, really deep uh, to the point where um, recently I was asked to speak at the Christian Medical Fellowship at the National Conference, and I said, you don't need me. Why are you asking me to come and speak to you? Surely doctors know this. Surely nurses know this. Surely clinicians know this. And they said, no, they don't. They really don't necessarily think that. Um, and one said to me, you know, I, when I became a doctor, I said to the Lord, um, Lord, if you haven't called me to be a pastor, then at least you can send me overseas as a medical missionary. Um, so it's, it's extremely deep. And so what we've tried to do is not only, and perhaps later we'll talk about the theological reasons for this, um, help people understand that God indeed, the God of all things, has a, uh, has a role for every single person that he has created in his image to contribute to the stewardship of, of all that they've been given in themselves and, if you like, physically in the areas that they find themselves in. Um, but that they can be fruitful for God in a whole variety of ways, every day, whatever they do. And I think our breakthroughs in terms of this framework that Paul has invited me to just um, share uh, came from talking to a number of people who did not think themselves to be fruitful. And so uh, we gave them a framework for fruitfulness, and I'm just going to do it very, very briefly. Um, uh, and it's got six ends in it. One is that um, you model godly character. Every day you get to model godly character. So that's one. Love, joy, peace, patience. I did not kill my teenagers today. Praise the Lord. <laughs> that self-restraint abounds, whatever it might be. Making good work in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. Every day you do something. Uh, you may be at the gym, you either pick up the towel off the floor or you don't, and so on. Or um, ministering grace and love. Every day you get the opportunity, somewhere with someone, at the checkout, if it's as simple as that, to the delivery person to engage with someone and to bless them. Mould a culture around you. Well, we either bring peace or we bring harm disharmony. We either bring joy or we bring the opposite into any situation. You can change a family with a tea light. You know, a little candle in the evening. You can change a team with chocolate biscuits. There's all kinds of things like that. Um, 
being a mouthpiece for truth and justice, when of course here we are. But, and and to, to the average Christian, that sounds altogether too grand. But the reality is you snuff out gossip at the school gate and you are a mouthpiece for truth and justice. Simple as that. Telling the truth in our culture is coming to be an heroic act and then being a messenger for the gospel, uh, obviously. And the point there is that five out of six of those you get to do every day, whoever you are. Let me give you one example. Supposing you were a barista. Um, doesn't look like many of you have done that job. <laughs> it's, a fun, it's, it's a fun job to do, and actually my daughter has done that job. And uh, so you're a barista, it's Monday morning, and how do you get to do the six M's on a Monday morning if you're a barista? 90 seconds. So the queue is going outside the door, and there's somebody in the queue who's saying, I just can't make up my mind whether I want a skinny latte with chocolate sprinkles and hazelnut syrup, or a skinny latte with chocolate sprinkles and vanilla syrup. And they can't make up with them, and the queue's going out the door, and it's pouring outside. Somehow you've got to be patient, and then you've got to make good work. Well, as a barista, they say at Starbucks that the that the, the, the distilled espresso shot has got to go into the hot milk within 10 seconds. Whether that's true or not, we really don't know. But the point is, other chem- otherwise the chemistry doesn't work. So you make good coffee. And then ministering grace and love. Well, if you're a barista, it's busy. You can't, you can't say hello to everybody. You may be able to write everybody's name on the cup. But you can't, you can't you have, to have a conversation with everybody. So you spiritually discern. You show everyone respect. But who, do I, who do I spend 30 seconds with? Who do I actually need to look them in the eye and so on? And then you mould a culture. Well, you can mould a culture in the coffee shop. We all know when we're thrilled about the person who's behind the counter that day because we know they're going to lift our day. We all know when we're like, oh, no. You know, we all know that. You mould a culture that way. And being a mouthpiece for truth and justice, you look at the rotor, the rotor, and you suddenly realise that um, Sophie is on, you know, Three Sundays, and you've asked never to do Sundays, or at least to do as few as possible. She got three Sundays in a row. You think, well, that's not fair. So if you let me do it, and you can go to the Rolling Stones or whatever it might be, um, and then finally the opportunity to share the to share the gospel. Well, actually, in the breaks with your with your colleagues, if if you're on break at the same time. But you know, sometimes it, you, you just go and talk to a customer. You see people, you know, baristas talking to customers in their breaks, sitting by the table, so and so forth. So 90 seconds every day, you get to do the six hours. And when we've shown that to people, whatever they do, they can see it. And what people need to see is that they're not these second-class Christians just waiting for an opportunity to share the gospel or waiting, praise the Lord, to do social action in their spare time or waiting to volunteer in the church. Nine to five, eight to six, seven to seven, whatever the thing is, you get to do it at home at school gate. And it's totally liberating to people to realise God is already working through them. Why wouldn't he? Praise him because he always delights to work through his people. Looking at how people reacted, I think there are one or two barristers in the room, but probably not barristers. But baristas are that much more exciting, aren't they? Um, Not all these things matter. Um, But very helpful, both, I think, on sort of challenging the sacred secular divide, um, the fact that. Um, when we talk about the significance of work, that it, it dignifies work and it, it recognises us and dignifies us in the workplace. And the idea that the workplace isn't simply an arena for personal evangelism, although of course it is that, and being a mouthpiece of the gospel, verbalising that is significant, but it affects everything, the totality of who we are, how we operate, how we engage with our colleagues, how we even conceive of the work that we do. Um, liberating really. Karen, talk to us about your own experience and, and perhaps earth that in your context. I suppose, first of all, did you at any stage have a, a sort of sacred secular whether the work was deprioritised and perhaps not dignified? And how, particularly within the PwC environment and that commercial sector, have you attempted to live as a disciple of Jesus and serve the common good within that environment? Thanks, thanks, Paul. Hello, everyone. Um, I, I guess, you know, perhaps like many of us in this room, you know, we've been brought up not to think about the things that Mark has just said in, in our church experience. You know, how many sermons have we heard about, um, you know, Monday to Friday, and what, what are we doing, and how do we work, and, and how do we engage with people? I think very rarely. I certainly didn't. So for me, 
um, being engaged with LICC was an absolute revelation and light bulb moment to understand that actually God really cared about what I did on a daily basis. And I think if I think about you know, life at PwC, the difference that that made to me was, um, and, you know, and the truth of it is, I think it comes in and out of one's consciousness of, of the day. But there were, there, were, there were definitely moments when I think, I'm, I'm doing this spreadsheet why am I doing this spreadsheet? You know, how meaningless is this spreadsheet I happen to be doing for, for the work that I was doing? But actually thinking about doing it to the glory of God. And actually something about um, whether I understand the context or I do understand it and I don't agree with it. This is where I am. This is where God's placed me. And I will do it to the glory of God. And there's something incredibly dignified about that. And, it, and I think it lifts your spirits, it lifts your demeanour. Um, I think you're a different person at work than if you sort of essentially, you know, tune out and switch off and just go through the motions. And I think that that sense of the dignity of work, of doing good work, um, it, it does lift one. And I think it gives one eyes to see other things around us, perhaps in, in sharper contrast, um, that are that are opportunities, um, that are seeing the kingdom coming, um, but through the daily, the daily round, work, the interactions with people um, that perhaps, you know, we've been brought up to think don't matter to God, but I, I think they do. When, and when you see that they do, I think it, I found it redeeming. I found that perspective, redeeming work, redeeming days, lifting my gaze, helping me engage with people in a very different way. Thank you, Karen. Sophie, you entered Parliament in 2019. How did people respond? How did people react? Particularly within your church environment when you said that this was what you were going to do. Do you see that amongst your peers this sacred-secular divide exists still? And if so, to what extent? Um, I think that's a really good question. I think I have been very blessed, if that's the right way to say it, to be in an environment where a lot of my peers um, very much adhere to the idea, um, sort of Kuiper's not one inch that Jesus doesn't call mine. Um, and actually we are encouraged to go in every part of society. Um, and that's not in, a, in an ignorant sort of way. You know, we are also taught to be, you know, shrewd as vipers and as gentle as doves and to sort of keep our eyes open um, but we are absolutely encouraged to get involved. And I think, I think today especially, there are a lot of young evangelicals, I would say, that are sometimes worried or fearful to get their hands dirty, so to speak, um, and might stay away from things like that. Um, but I would wholeheartedly encourage it. I don't think it's the easiest, um, but it's, it's exceptionally rewarding. And I think it's a bit like what Danny was saying. Um, there are definitely disproportionate, sort of dis disproportionately high percentages of minorities that come and work in Parliament and different worldviews. But I would absolutely say that about Christians. It definitely brings people here, and I think there is a reason for that. Um, seeing real change and wanting to influence real policies um, is really encouraging. Um, and there are Christians left, right, and centre, which has been one of the greatest encouragements that I have witnessed. At, at, from working here, and um, there are so many good and faithful servants that walk the halls of, of Parliament um, from all across party um, and different persuasions, which is just fantastic and so encouraging. Thank you. You've emphasised that Danny started with that point, didn't he? That no one stands nowhere, that everyone comes with a faith perspective mm -hmm. of one sort or another. They, that might be a secular humanist perspective, but it's still a faith perspective, and there's seeking in some way to apply that to their life, um, whether that's in a consistent way or not. In the world of politics, very practically, day to day, which is probably different from what we see in terms of Prime Minister's question time on a weekly basis, what are the challenges but also the opportunities of working in politics? You're in a Member of Parliament's office, quite a lot of the work that you do is outside of the public gaze. Mm. What does that look like? What does your day involve and how do you think about that as a disciple of Jesus? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess the thing that I would always say, and the thing that I've certainly found through my experience of being here for two and a half years, you can always find common ground. Um, working on different policies and talking to someone about their thoughts and views on those policies, it's a great conversation starter of why do you, why do you believe that life at the end is sacred? That we shouldn't be doing anything to that or why do you believe that we shouldn't be over-sexualising our children in education and actually opening up those conversations <coughs> with one another and finding that you have a lot of common ground ideologically actually in quite a lot of ways that you think about things and that in itself leads to sort of a very natural conversation which then opens up um, nine times out of ten I've had that conversation that has led to a faith-based conversation and I have not been the one to start it um, which I find really interesting. Um, so I've had the opportunity to invite um, two or three of my colleagues to church, and one of them is continuing to, to sort of come along, and he has a completely different worldview to me, absolutely starkly different. Um, but there is something contagious, um, and there is something there that he is interested in. And I guess it's finding those conversations and finding those values to talk about and start there, um, I find is the most helpful. And that naturally leads to, yes, more difficult topics. But I guess it's what you were saying, Paul, it's if you show consistency. I think people in Parliament are looking particularly for parliamentarians to be consistent in their views. And I think, to be honest, it enrages the public most when parliamentarians turn around and are not consistent in those views. Um, we can fault our politicians for many different things, but consistency is a great one to actually be able to stand and say, look at my voting record, look at how I've held myself with integrity and dignity, and look at how I've been consistent over 5, 10, 15 years of my career. And actually, I think that still says a lot to society in today's world. Um, and I think the same goes for staffers. Um, I think looking for an honest staffer um, who has integrity and works hard um, is really important and it's really contagious as well actually and finding someone who stands by what they say and their words mean something um, and their words are a bond to which they live is really refreshing and you want to get to know them and um, regardless of what that might be it's really interesting to delve into that and find out why do they think that um, so I've been really encouraged from my day to day and I guess conversations with colleagues they they happen very naturally, like you're working on policies. So policies that I work on um, are relationships and sex education in schools. Um, so that's a big one to talk about in terms of what we are teaching our children, um, which has a lot of common ground um, biblically with where we stand. Um, and assisted suicide, again, is another one. And the dignity and sacredness of life is another very common ground. But even, even smaller things like economic policies um, and policies surrounding the union of the UK, um, there are loads and loads of issues around where people will have an opinion. I guess everyone has an opinion. Um, and sometimes asking what it is just leads to the best conversations that I've had. Thank you. It's easy, isn't it, to take a pop at politicians, but I reflect on my own life. I think if every decision I took was subject to public record, public scrutiny, uh, I'm wholly inconsistent often inconsistent. Um, it's humbling that, isn't it? I am struck, Sophie, that not only did you enter Parliament, but then a few years later you joined the Synod of the Church of England. I'm tempted to ask which is the more political <laughs> arena out of those two, but the question that I really have for you is that that reflects the fact that your commitment to relating the Gospel to all of life, including your work, doesn't mean that you're not interested in the life and witness of the gathered church, and in your case, the Church of England particularly. What's your reflection on that? How do those two things fit together? I think the thing I found most interesting, and another word could be terrifying, um, was actually how similar General Synod is to the Houses of Parliament and what goes on in the chamber. Um, and I know I'm speaking to members of clergy here. Um, I would say that it's actually extremely similar in a lot of ways. Um, I definitely think we are called to have those conversations and to witness to people, but I really do stand by sort of that shrewd 
um, characteristic of understanding who you're talking to, understanding the politics of the small p, um, trying to find common ground, trying to work together, um, essentially being co-belligerent. So my enemy's enemy is my friend, and finding out actually unlikely bedfellows that you can work on something together um, and work for something that is so good and so gospel-centred and have an aim that is so important with someone who's really unlikely. And I really like doing that. I really like working with um, sort of unusual um, bedfellows in that. And I do find it very similar. I think it's just as political. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Karen, let me level with you if I may. I find it easier, if I'm utterly truthful, to see how being people director in Tierfund is a way of integrating gospel with your work and serving the common good than being a consultant in PwC. I immediately recognise that that's the problem, that's part of the problem at least, in terms of I'm posing a particular narrative on that, and the sacred secular divide. Um, challenge me on that, please. <laughs> Well, firstly, being people director at Tear Fund is not heaven on earth, I can tell you that. <laughs> I think George Burwell wrote a book called Messiology, and it started when two or three are gathered in his name, sooner or later there'll be a mess. <laughs> and, um, uh, one, one of our trustees is here as well, Rosemary, and I'm sure Rosemary knows as well. But, um, you know, Christian organisations also have their challenges because, guess what, they are full of mortal people. And uh, for those who are church leaders or run organisations that are Christian uh, organisations, you will know that uh, in practical experience. So one of the challenges is actually the um, assumption we make about how people behave in Christian organisations. And we put perhaps those individuals on a different plane to the colleagues that we might work with in a so-called secular organisation. So I just want to recognise that as the first point. Um, and, and also Tierfund is an amazing place to work where it is a huge privilege to be working for an organisation that so explicitly seeks to be Christ-centred um, and it makes a difference and, and, and it is a privilege to work there. So there, there are definitely those opportunities for being so explicit in, in prayer collectively, corporately, um, discerning God's will. But I don't see that there's any difference, frankly, from doing that in PwC. So I think PwC does exist as an organisation for the common good. It is seeking to make things more efficient, more effective, um, that it wants to see the flourishing of people uh, and society. Um, I I do think that's what PwC stands for. It won't be perfect, but none of us are perfect, are we? So I think when we think about the endeavours of organisations, it's really really important to, to... acknowledge our judgment of the sort of levels um, you know, estate agents and, uh, and consulting firms and Christian charities and churches, and actually go back to perhaps some of the points that were raised in the prayer breakfast today about each person is made in the image of God. Each person has dignity afforded to them for that reason alone. How do I engage with each person? That is no different whichever combination of people, whatever endeavour it is. And I think that is such an extraordinary truth to lay hold of uh, each one of us in in whatever we do, wherever we are, each day, that each person that that we are working with is made in God's image. Um, What's our response to that? I think the second thing for me is, um, is about, particularly in relation to what difference does it make being a disciple of God, is that Um, Again, the Philippians 2 reading about the service attitude. There are plenty of people in PwC who have a servant mentality and attitude to the work that they're doing and serving their clients. So let's not be judgmental about that. Um, So we we don't have a monopoly on it, but we do have a source of truth and a, a grounding and an opportunity to draw strength and inspiration from the example of Jesus. So I think that that's really, um, that's important. So I'm mixing up the questions in terms of um, contrast and similarities, really. Um, so, and I think that sort of goes to the heart of perhaps one of the, um, the six ends, which is making good work. Um, in the Genesis creation story, um, all that God made was good. 
And surely that is a pattern for all of us, that all that we do, wherever we are, is good. Um, and so we have choices in how we um, operate in a consultancy firm. Sometimes you see the good you can do, and the reality is your client won't pay for it. And, then, and you find yourself in a, in a conflicted situation. Sometimes, you know, life happens and you don't have the outcome that you want. Um, sometimes you do the work and, and a lot of good comes out of it. So we live in a messy world where um, we live with our intention to do good. And sometimes we can't control the system in which we operate, but we can certainly play our part in being that presence there. So I, I just want to recognise that we operate within systems, and some of those systems um, are beyond us, but we can be a faithful presence within them and do the good that we can within them. Thank you. In a moment, we're going to come to you. We would love to hear your questions and comments on what's been said so far, so that's a little heads up and prepare that. Um, I was very encouraged and challenged in speaking with a management consultant from Accenture the other day, who said to me that the best management consultants in her experience were those that talked least and listened most. And she said the role is to listen and see what is really going on and then try and respond in a way that is helpful and life-giving. And as I reflected on that, I thought, isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus was an absolute expert in listening intently to people, observing what was really going on in any given, situ given situation, and then responding in a way that was life-giving and appropriate and redemptive. Um, so that gave me um, food for thought. Mark, it's 21 years since you joined LICC. You wrote the book, Thank God It's Monday, shortly before then. In that time... What have you observed in terms of change? Would you say that the scene has changed? Would you say that the way Christians think about their work has changed? Or is it as it's always been? Have I failed? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, to, these things go in seasons. I suppose that my, my, my main response would be that <clears throat> overall the... Um, there has been a significant shift um, in sections of the church. There's also been a significant shift in the thinking of um, the strategic thinking at the top of a number of denominations on how this nation will be reached. Um, whether that will then translate down is another question. So, for example, in 2017 we were involved in writing a report called Setting God's People Free. Um, which was adopted by General Synod even before your time, to add your weight to it, um, which essentially called for two changes in the Church of England. One, two cultural shifts. One was to deal with the clergy-lay divide. That was the perception of inequality that exists between clergy and laity, which is not necessarily anything that anybody is actively doing, but it, it is a reality, the sense that clergy are holier, that it's up to them to do the work and so on and so forth, and that clergy recruit the lay people to support the gathered ministries of the church. That was one key issue for the church. The second one was a recognition that the Church of England needed to make disciples for all of life. In other words, to empower people to be fruitful wherever they were, Monday through, uh, Monday through Sunday or Sunday through Saturday, whichever way you want to uh, uh, Range it. And that was adopted and extraordinarily, normally with the Church of England, uh, they produce learning communities, diocesan learning communities, and four or five will pilot this kind of a thing and work out what to do. In this case, 33 out of the 43 dioceses of the Church of England uh, went through uh, some of this material. That does not mean that 33 dioceses are now making whole life disciples, it just means that they saw the issue. And I would say that there are now 11 dioceses of the Church of England that are going for it. The new strategy for the Church of England um, is go younger, fair enough, mixed ecology, which means have a variety of expressions of gathered church, and all of which is to be empowered by missionary disciples. Now, if you said to me 20 years ago, or 21 years ago, when Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play, um, that, or even five years ago, that the Church of England would be saying, A, using the word disciple across the streams, and B, saying that actually 
the church's strategy needed to be empowered by missionary disciples. In other words, by the whole body of Christ, not only by the laity. And I think a lot of people thought you would be nuts. And we have seen the same thing with the Presbyterian Church of Northern Ireland that adopted disciple-making as their core strategy. Um, Elim um, shifted their theological education and their core strategy. So you can see all of these things. But at the same time, there is a difference. It's a, it's a long way from synods to, to a local parish church. And so, um, again, 20 years ago, we could not, simply could not find a whole life disciple-making church in the UK. And we asked a lot of people. We could find praying churches and worship-driven churches and, and teaching churches and preaching churches and bungee-jumping churches and all kinds of phenomenal creativity, but not... Not a disciple-making church where the goal was to grow the whole community, not just a small number of elite people um, in there. And now we can find them in every denomination, in every part of the country. Now, it's not hundreds, but there are <coughs> tens and scores. So the, the thing has changed. At the same time, the sacred sector is very powerful and it's very fragile. Work went off the agenda for lots of people. Work is now was a church-approved special interest topic for a season and every Steve Abington is here from Birmingham you know every every major conference would have a work thing and so on and so forth that's kind of gone and there are some reasons for that so I'm I'm both um, I'm hugely encouraged Um, you know cultural change takes time in 1974 John Stott did Lausanne and that was a call to the church to integrate really societal action into the life of the church rather than just social action. What we have seen is that there's hardly a church in the UK, certainly within the evangelical and Anglo-Catholic streams, for example, I'm not dismissing any other stream, that doesn't think that social action is an important thing to do. It's just taken for granted. Whereas in 1960, 1970, 1980, liberals did that and the evangelicals preached the gospel, if you like. That's not the case now, praise the Lord. So we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, when we were singing We Seek Your Kingdom this morning, the words of that very powerful mm. in regards to this space. This is your opportunity. So if you have a question, a comment, uh, what we might do, my colleague Aaron has the roving mic. But if we take maybe a couple at a time, that would be good. So the gentleman on the front row and then just be mine. Thank you. Yeah, I want to thank you uh, uh, for where well, John first of all, LICC, and uh, so Mark, because um, you changed my life. Because uh, I was really impacted by the whole sacred secular divine as a minister. I, I came to the conclusion that my oc- occupation was my had become my preoccupation. And uh, I very much talked about those things which were important to me as a minister. I have a conviction that, that many ministers were like me. So I made a change and I went part-time and got involved and become a local councillor and I've done other things over the years so I've been very much involved in those things. Mm-hmm. My, my question is, is in terms of this whole thing of for us as ministers, I wonder whether we're part of the problem that our, pre- that our occupation is our preoccupation of what ministers can do <coughs> to really make a difference because you know, I listen to sermons you know, on a regular basis and that there isn't enough reference to what people do outside of the church. The focus tends to be much more on the spiritual activities of the commerce than actually the whole thing of everyday life and doing, doing, doing a good job. You know, I don't hear that a great deal. I wonder what, what ministers can do you know, to, to really encourage people to recognise that, that actually you know, we're more like, ministers are more like the coaches. You know, they're, they're, they're the athletes, they're the people out there in the world making a difference. What, what can we do which is really help people? Because I think we are part of the problem. Thank you. Hold the thought, Mark, and then the gentleman behind had a question or comment. John Sherrington, Siri Bishop of Westminster, Roman Catholic. So thank you very much for your presentations and the witness that you give, particularly uh, the witness through the APPG here in Parliament, which is so important as we try to uh, keep and hold our Christian values. As the Roman Catholic Church is engaged in a synodal listening process at the moment, so across the world, I echo so much of what you've said about listening, transparency, integrity, and people are saying, 
We want greater transparency, accountability, integrity from our ministers, our priests, in relation to our parishes, etc. I think we tried to combine that body of Catholic social teaching, which is very rich, which was hidden for many years, with very practical love in action, which is six points about Catholic social teaching that we roll out through our schools, through our parishes, and children, in fact, become the evangelizers of their parents in terms of social teaching, justice, care of creation, etc. So that's been really effective, love in action, and Pope Francis calls us to be missionary disciples. So that's, again, a change of language which echoes what Mark was saying there about that language of missionary discipleship. So that's all very positive ecumenically. I think my question is, um, serving the common good, we all have different understandings of the common good. That might be reflected, for example, in the debate that Sophie talked about on assisted dying, assisted suicide. Some argue the common good says no, some says yes. So how do we understand and come to shared understandings of the common good? Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I was going to say brief responses uh, from the panel, but um, as you will, Mark. <laughs> oh, thank you for those very simple questions. How to change the church. <laughs> <laughs> How to understand the uh, common good all in one go. Um, just to deal with the church thing, if you like, first off. Um, We've got a lot of material now on if, if a church leader wants to create a whole life disciple making church, we've spent 15 years in the field working with church leaders across the streams on how that can be. I would say that the, the number one difference is curiosity. And um, that is that when a church leader is actually interested in what people do, then that almost inevitably shifts their ministry and it shifts the way they read the Bible and it shifts their prayers. And the number one action, which is quite a sacrificial action, that we have found that church leaders who do this, and of course you, you've been even more radical, you've done bivocational, um, is that they go visit people on what we call their front lines. Now, the front line could be the local police station, the front line could be the bowls club. Go and stand in that person's place, walk around with them, and that has a massive impact because what happens then is not only is the person validated by your visit, but you hear these stories. You suddenly they start to tell you, "Well, I was working with so and so, and she said this, and he said that," and you suddenly realise how fruitful they are. You begin to help them see their context with Jesus' eyes. So the number one thing is a visit. So if you if you've got if you are in lay work or whether you're in Parliament or wherever, you invite someone into your place. They may or may not want to come, but makes a huge difference. Some small groups do this. Around the common good, I mean, that, that is definitely a, a question above my pay grade. Um, but let me, let me give you one, um, t two thoughts on that. Um, what we try to do, if you like, at the lowest common denominator level, which is, as you probably picked up, where I tend to operate, um, that is, what, is it, what does good look like for the ordinary person out there? And where we've gone to is, is like Karen, as you might expect, we've gone to Genesis. And we looked at what does good working look like for God? When God says good, it's all good. And the word in Hebrew is tov. It's a big word in Hebrew, that word. It's good. It's good. You know, it's, a, it's a very little word. It's a big word. And um, it comes through scripture. Um, and when you look at how God works, what does God do? God brings order out of chaos. That's good. God brings provision. That's good. God brings joy. We read about, you know, it looks good, tastes good, and by golly, it does you good, kind of. It brings joy. God brings beauty. And God releases potential and enables people to release potential. So the common good should at least do all of those things. And actually, you know, that works for housework. So if you ever thought we didn't want to do housework, now I'm afraid you have to because it it brings order, it generates provision, it brings joy, because tidiness, I'm told, is, is, you know, brings joy, apparently. <laughs> uh, it makes most things more beautiful than they were before, and it releases people in time to do things better. So I think we have to begin somewhere with this notion of what, what does that look like? And it, 
cue and flourishing, the renewal of the person, then you take it to, obviously you have to go to the cross, Colossians 1.15 through 20, and what does human flourishing look like, which is more than activity? It is a deep relationship embedded in Christ, um, where, where, in a sense, uh, Karen began, I walk with Jesus each day, and so there's the two things. How do we help people walk with Jesus in their everyday, connect to Jesus in their everyday, how do the disciplines of the separated church, the things we learn when we gather together and in small groups, how do they teach us to listen to God when we're there, in the moment? As Karen said, you know, she drifts in and out, but the spirit gets through occasionally, if I can put it that way. <laughs> Karen, do you have anything to add? By the way, please catch my eye if you'd like to ask a question, make a comment. Yeah, just, just very briefly, I think, to say... Um, in terms of the common good, I guess it builds on what Mark was saying, but certainly at Latifan, our view of poverty is about broken relationships, broken relationships between God, between the created order, between each other and within ourselves. And, and so I'm struck by the common good being about restoring relationships, uh, any, any one or all of those things. The other thing I'm just struck by in terms of the process of seeking the common good is to listen which is the point I think Sophie made about finding common ground. Actually, the process of listening and helping to understand where people are coming from in terms of their perspective of the common good alongside our perspective of common good. Thank you. Yes, the gentleman on the front row here. Um, I was at a conference a number of years ago and someone was teaching on Ephesians. And the, the roles of leadership in Ephesians, prophets, pastors, apostles, teachers, evangelists, are there to prepare people for works of service. And the focus the person speaking on it said that our job as church leaders is to prepare people for the flourishing of everything. And so much of our focus has been on the flourishing of the church, but it's actually preparing people for the transformation of everything. And I just wondered that shift in thinking as churches is something that features in your studies. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Sophie, let me ask you about that in terms of this vision. I mean, not least in the book of Revelation, it's extraordinary heaven, of new heaven, new earth, uh, a garden city uh, that gives life. Uh, does, that, does that help you as, as you think about your life? Um, yeah, I think that does help. And I think it helps actually when you're looking at policy. Um, and actually looking at things that are going to very tangibly change the laws of the country. Um, I think regardless of where the policy is coming from, I think I could say a hand on heart, politicians at best, you know, they do have the best of intentions for the public. They are trying to do the right thing. Um, and what they think is the right thing. Um, and that might be, in a lot of cases, the lesser of two evils um, and the lesser sort of difficult option. Um, but I think the flourishing of mankind, I think, to be perfectly honest, is at the forefront of a lot of politicians' minds. Um, they're very driven, like exceptionally driven, by wanting to do best by their constituents, which is an incredibly admirable um, thing to want. Um, now, that can look slightly different for all of us and what we think is best, but I guess that's coming back to what we think is the common good and what we think is human flourishing. Um, but I definitely think... Um, particularly within the House of Commons. And as Danny alluded to, we have prayers every day before the House starts, and the prayer ends with your kingdom come and your name be hallowed. Um, and I do very much so believe that a lot of politicians have that in mind. Thank you. We are about to come into land, but I want to see before I make some closing remarks if anyone is itching to say one final thing. Thank you all you for obviously got experience with my difficult questions. So, um, um, I, I'm just sort of slightly struck by the, the, the first paragraph on the back there that says the great divide is the all too common belief. And I'm just wondering what evidence you have for what you're claiming is an all too common belief. Because part of the belief is that some Christians um, believe that God isn't interested in some parts of their life. And I just wonder which Christians you're asking that question to. 
It may be that people maybe don't realise the impact that they could have until past their life. But they, do they really believe that God isn't interested in that or is irrelevant to it? I would certainly question that. And, and I, I think, you know, it may be that actually the question you're really addressing is what are the assumptions that the church has made in the past about how Christian belief should be manifested? And I would agree with you about, about that, that there's not enough emphasis on how people should uh, live their lives at work or whatever it is. But that's a problem in the church. I don't think it's a problem in, um, among individual Christians. Interesting. Thank you. It's always helpful to have your questions. Mark. You could talk about this at length, I know, but in just a minute, how would you respond to Richard's point and his challenge? Without wanting to uh, sort of interpret the word belief too deeply, um, what, I would, what, what we'd ask somebody to say, so um, do the children in your church know why mathematics is significant to God? Or any subject that they do at school? Why is schoolwork significant to God? Do they think that matters to God? And I think if you had asked almost any child in this country, in almost any school, they wouldn't think it particularly matters to God. So what that tells you is that somehow there's a culture, to your point, which has not addressed something absolutely central to their life, which they spend 40 hours a week doing. And I suppose the data, not that we've done a survey in the last 10 years, the last data is 2009, suggests that on the one hand, if you do ask a Christian, does God believe, uh, do you believe that God is interested in all of your life? They, they are quite likely to say yes, because that is the right answer. And how could God not be? But operationally, that doesn't apply, which is why you do find a doctor saying, Lord, send me overseas as a medical missionary, which is why you do find people who think uh, that they're not doing anything for God when they're actually protecting the Prime Minister at number 10 which is a story. So, so, so part of the question really is, what's the content of that belief? So yes, I could acknowledge that God is interested in all things and he's the Lord of all the earth. But operationally in my daily life, I have a very strong hierarchy um, operating. Talking to a housewife the other day uh, who had just come across that little framework around, she used to work for Procter & Gamble around uh, housework. She said it completely transformed her because she thought this is just something I have to get done. God's not interested in that, just have to get it done. And now she does it differently. So I, I don't have up-to-date 2020 statistical evidence for you. I have an awful lot of evidence from church leaders uh, and from people saying, yeah, most church leaders will say all of life is significant to God. Uh, but it's not, it's not how we operate. It's not, an operational, it's not operationalized, if that's the right word. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this vision that Mark has articulated, this whole life mission, this desire to integrate the gospel with everything, including our work, that has changed my life. And our hope and prayer is that it will change the lives of a million Christians in the next five years. That's what we're working on. That's what we're working to. We would love you to be part of the story. We would love you to connect with us. If you're not already connected, our details are on the back of the Great Five book. Um, please get in contact. It would be great to see you at future events. I would like to thank the panel um, for their contribution and also the way they've responded to questions. Mark Green, Sophie Clark, and Karen Brown. Perhaps you would show your And if you'll allow me in the remaining two minutes, I'd like to pray for you as we seek to do this wherever we are when we exit that door and in the days ahead. Let us pray. May our love and our labours now echo your love and your labours, O Lord. Let all that we do here in these our brief lives, in this our brief moment to love, in this the work you have ordained for us, flower in winsome and beautiful foretaste 
of still greater glories yet to come. O Spirit of God, now shape our hearts. O Spirit of God, now guide our hands. O Spirit of God, now build your kingdom amongst us. And as we pray for Danny, we pray for ourselves. Lord, we pray that we will be people of courage, of wisdom, of honesty, people with soft hearts in all that we do and say and think for your glory and the life of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.